Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is entitled Remembering Rachel, the Slaughter of the Innocents. It's a guest essay by Pam Fickensher. Pam is a Lutheran pastor, mother, and writer who lives in Minnesota. She blogs regularly about ministry, motherhood, and the lectionary at pastorpam.typepad.com. Pam's essay, Remembering Rachel, is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 30, 2007. I'm sorry, said the parishioner. I can't promise anything for the Christmas program this year. The very thought of three-year-olds in angel costumes is more than I can bear. Of course, I thought to myself. Last year, I had made nearly daily visits to the hospital as our choir director kept vigil with her toddler son, born with a heart defect requiring a transplant. When Ellis finally died during Advent, a pall fell over our whole church community. We rejoiced when, a few months later, she had enough energy to return to work. But we all knew that for these parents, life would never be the same. Christmas would never be the same. And certainly, church would never be the same. Those sweet words, unto us a child is born, will always taste a little bitter on their tongues. Since I have my own healthy two-year-old at home, it's been hard not to turn away, first from Ellis's broken body, and then from his parents' waves of grief, despair, and anger. I've been embarrassed at how easily I weep for Ellis, and how little professional distance I can muster. I know their responses and mine are normal. As a pastor, I expect it. As a fellow mother, I can hardly bear it. It's too awful to think how fragile and unfair life is, too heart-wrenching to imagine my own son's life torn away in such a manner. And then for this week, the words from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, 13 to 23. A voice goes up in Rama, Rachel weeping for her children. After we have all felt good about our generosity and best wishes for peace on earth around our Christmas trees, Matthew's gospel wrenches us back to reality like a winter wind taking our breath away. We don't live in a peaceful snow globe. We live in a world where children die and where mothers grieve. Not just occasionally, but every day. Not just in hospitals, but on city streets and in mud huts. We live in a world where the oppressed suffer and the oppressors get away, literally, with murder. There's no getting around it. Matthew's slaughter of the innocents, as the church has called it, is a god-awful text. Some of us may remember being taught the flight into Egypt as children, usually in a matter-of-fact way, 
sometimes as an adventure story designed to make Mary and Joseph heroic, when in fact they were simply refugees. I don't recall being terrorized by images of Roman soldiers slaughtering babies, but I certainly got the point. This was one very dangerous world for Jesus. At the time, at least, I thought that our own world was safer for children. You could make a good argument that we should save this story for another day. Lent, for example, or maybe some late-night, adults-only occasion. But our songs of peace and public displays of charity have not erased the headlines of child poverty, gun violence, and even genocide. Ours is a brutal world. Today the victims are statistically less likely to be Jewish and more likely to be from Darfur or Zimbabwe or Iraq. But the sounds of Rachel weeping for her children are not uncommon. If we could hear them, they would drown out our cheery, tinny carols every 20 seconds or so. It's also the same world Jesus' ancestors were born into. That long line of men and women Matthew relays in chapter 1. Shall we count how many of them buried a child? And so let's be clear. Jesus is a Jew, and as such, in the biblical world, He's always at risk. Matthew doesn't just tell this story as a piece of news. It's a story in the most literary sense, one designed to draw us beyond what happened to them into the depths of what's happening to us now. Reading about Joseph with prophetic dreams should remind us of another righteous man who ended up exiled from his family in Egypt. Hearing of baby boys slaughtered by the Roman Empire would remind Matthew's readers of the way Moses narrowly escaped that fate as well. And any Jew hearing this story in first century Palestine would remember the more recent terrors under Antiochus, when any mother caught circumcising her son would be rewarded with a dead baby hung around her neck. There's another memory Matthew wishes to stir up here, though, and it's one with hope. The evangelist is quoting Jeremiah 31.15, who called to mind the matriarch Rachel as the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem and marched families off into exile. Rachel's weeping occupies a key turning point in Jeremiah. When the prophet shifts from declaring God's judgment to God's promises of hope. Keep your voice from weeping. There's hope for your future. Your children shall come back. Why Rachel? The ancient rabbis tell a story of God's response to this pivotal tragedy in Judah's history. Jeremiah, they say, called up Moses from his grave who in turn called the patriarchs to bear witness as the exiles left their homes. Each of them responds with indignation. Lord of the world, I did not protest, but willingly let myself be bound on the altar and even stretched out my neck beneath the knife. Will you not 
Will you not remember this on my behalf and have mercy on my children? So, for example, Isaac protests. But God is not moved, not by Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Moses himself, until finally Rachel stands before God, and her words alone turn the tide. Although Rachel is a biological ancestor for only two of the original twelve tribes, she's recognized in Jeremiah as mother of all, and even God has to respond to her insistent plea for mercy. Fairness has nothing to do with it. It's the promise of one parent to another. Your children will come back. Matthew, in turn, invokes Rachel in the midst of this story of God with us. The birth of a child whose name is a verb, literally, to save. God's salvation may seem far off and inadequate to the mothers who mourn, but the promise is deeper than this moment in time. The threat of this Herod passes for a time, only to be replaced by another Herod, still another ruler without scruples. But when this child of Rachel returns to Jerusalem as an adult, God enters into the fate of every doomed child and into every bereft parent. For Christians, the birth of Christ can and must remind us that there can be no cheap comfort for those who mourn their children. Cute pageants and pious carols do nothing to stop the devastation of those who have lost a child for any reason. Toys for tots and even our best legislation for children's health don't make that big of a dent either. Only something deeper, God's entering into this world of sorrows will accomplish the depth of healing, the salvation we need. This is not a cheap sympathy, soothing cliché that it will all work out in the end. Mothers still wail every day. But if God is with us, then perhaps we can bear to listen to the cries of sorrows and pleas for justice of our time too knowing that all our weeping is gathered up by the one who will turn it into dancing. Nothing, not even death, can separate us from our children, our parents, and even from our enemies. Nothing, not even a bottomless pit of grief or the intractable legacy of injustice shall keep God away from being with us. Yes, from saving us. And now for further reflection. What is your visceral response to Matthew's story of the slaughter of the innocents? Matthew chapter 2, 13 to 23. Do you identify with those who are rescued or with those who are left behind? What contact do you have with exiles and refugees in your life? In what way can this season be a time to support them? 
And finally, reflect on the words of Stanley Hauerwas of Duke University. The quote comes from his commentary on Matthew in the Brazos Theological Commentary on the Bible from the year 2006. Here's Hauerwas on the story of the slaughter of the innocents. Perhaps no event in the gospel more determinatively challenges the sentimental depiction of Christmas than the death of these children. Jesus is born into a world in which children are killed and continue to be killed to protect the power of tyrants like Herod. Remembering Rachel, The Slaughter of the Innocents, a guest essay by Pam Fickensher. For books this week, I review Alistair McGrath, Christianity's Dangerous Idea, The Protestant Revolution, A History from the 16th Century to the 21st. San Francisco, Harper, 2007, 552 pages. According to David Barrett, author of World Christian Encyclopedia, Contemporary Christianity has an experienced an explosion of what he calls quote-unquote neo-apostolic movements. Distinct from traditional Protestants, in numbering about 400 million Christians in 20,000 so-called movements, neo-apostolic believers, according to Barrett, quote, reject historical denominationalism in restrictive or overbearing central authority." End quote. In Barrett's estimate, they will constitute 581 million members by the year 2025, 120 million more than all Protestant movements. In two decades then, these sectarian movements will outnumber Orthodox and Protestant Christians and be almost half the size of world Catholicism. Welcome to the blowback of what Alistair McGrath calls the revolutionary and dangerous idea of the Protestant Reformation. That ordinary Christians, as opposed to any centralized religious authority, could and should read the Bible for themselves in their own everyday language and draw their own conclusions from it. Which Bible, by the way, is now available in nearly 2400 vernacular languages? It's a shame that McGrath, professor of historical theology at Oxford University, never drills down to explore in depth the chaos and creativity of Protestantism's mutating impulse. But in all fairness, he's a victim of his subject matter. Having decided to cover 500 years in 500 pages aimed at a general readership, to let as many diverse perspectives have their 15 seconds of fame, and to show how Protestants disagree on almost everything, perhaps it was inevitable that his book would only glide across the surface. McGrath is also a victim of his own Christian preferences. No historian is neutral, of course, 
But there's an apologetic agenda just beneath the surface of McGrath's exposition. He mentions not only the good, but the bad and the ugly of Protestantism. But instead of letting the historical chips fall where they might, he works hard to rehabilitate his subject, and especially its reformed wing. One could nitpick at unexplained references that will stump his intended readership, or omissions and oversights, but this is still an accessible introduction by a remarkable scholar to what he calls the so-called uncontrollable forces that were unleashed 500 years ago by Martin Luther and his kin. I'd love to see a more scholarly treatment by McGrath that explores in depth what he rightly describes as the most fundamental question of any religion. Who has the right or authority to define its faith? The answer to that question seems to be no one. For as he says on page 221, for what has distinguished Protestantism is its principled refusal to allow any authority above Scripture. In the end, then, Protestantism is a method, and not any one spe specific historical outcome of the application of that method. Alistair McGrath, Christianity's Dangerous Idea For film this week, I review Blade Runner, The Director's Cut, which comes from the year 1992. Set in Los Angeles in November 2019, Harrison Ford stars as the Blade Runner Rick Deckard, a special police officer who must track down and quote-unquote retire four replicants who have returned to Earth from off-world colonies. Their crime is they want to be is that they want to be fully human. As it is, they are genetically manipulated humanoids, virtually indistinguishable from normal humans, except that they are superior in strength and intellect, lack full emotions, and have a lifespan of only four years. Deckard falls in love with Rachel, a fifth experimental replicant who thinks she is truly human, and there are ambiguities that Deckard himself might be a replicant, and in the way the film ends. Blade Runner fared poorly when it was released in 1982. That makes it the 25th anniversary this year. It previewed the same weekend as E.T., but at, since then it has become a cult classic that regularly appears on lists of the best films ever. Much more than a sci-fi thriller, which it is, the film explores nothing less than what it means to be human in a very dark world. The year 2007 then marks its 25th anniversary. And since its original release, there have been seven versions of the film, including this year, the final cut in 2007, notable because it's the only version over which the director, Ridley Scott, had total control. For a good article on the history of Blade Runner, go to Wikipedia and simply type in Blade Runner.
Blade Runner, the director's cut. For poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Christopher Harvey called The Nativity. Christopher Harvey lived from 1597 to 1663. <clears throat> Unfold thy face, <clears throat> unmask thy ray, shine forth, bright sun, double the day. Let no malignant misty fume, nor foggy vapor once presume to interpose thy perfect sight this day, which makes us love thy light forever better that we could that blessed object once behold, which is both the circumference and center of all excellence, or rather neither but a treasure unconfined without measure, whose center and circumference, including all preeminence, excluding nothing but defect, and infinite in each respect, is equally both here and there, and now and then and everywhere, and always one, himself the same, a being far above a name, Draw near, then, and freely pour forth all thy light into that hour, which was crowned with his, with his birth, and made heaven envy earth. Let not his birthday clouded be, by whom thou shinest, and we see. Christopher Harvey, The Nativity Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December 30th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.